leaves tastes good like a beer should. You said it. Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. Try a frosty cold glass of Bavarian right away. What you say? No boulder dash or baloney here. Cheers, everyone, and welcome to the Unfiltered Gentleman. And now, with a higher BAC than your ABV, Greg, Scott, and Dan. That's right. Welcome in, everybody. It's the Unfiltered Gentleman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining. Thanks for drinking along. I am Greg. Uh, not here is Scott. But not more here. importantly, here's Dan. Hey, what up? What's happening? Uh, very important show for you guys today. We're not going to spend too much time gabbering and jib-jabbing, whatever the cool kids are saying these days. We are being joined by someone who's very important in the beer scene, Scott Ungerman, the brewer, excuse me, the brew master of Anchor Brewing up in San Francisco. I, I think we've all had Anchor Brewing. Every year we always have the, uh, the Christmas ale. Oh, yeah. Anyways, Scott is joining us to talk about uh, some of his history, some Anchor talk, and we get a special early release of Christmas ale. So let's turn things over to Scott. Scott, thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome. This is uh, this is huge for us. We you know we've talked to a lot of brewers. I think everyone has had or heard of Anchor. So thanks for uh, hanging out with us. It's a real milestone. <laughs> well, anyway, just just so we have it right, that the the title's brewmaster, uh, and uh, not that I'm hung up on that or anything. <laughs> not, have, not not that titles matter. We have somebody else who's a head brewer, and and so that gets um, or actually the lead brewer. But yeah. All right, I'm I'm making the note right now, brewmaster. And you also have a, a brewmaster emeritus as well. Oh yeah, Mark Carpenter is the brewmaster emeritus, and then like Fritz Fritz Maytag is truly like the brewmaster super emeritus. If you wanna if you wanna go in the in the history <laughs> and the lineage, uh, but but Mark was the brewmaster here after Fritz uh, sold the company, and then and then Mark handed the reins over to me, and I was lucky enough that he was like semi-retired when I first got here. Um, and still working a few days a week, and I, I got a really good overlap with Mark, so I have a, have a really good historical perspective on all things Anchor that, that came with uh, my tutelage under Brewmaster Emeritus, Mr. Mark Carpenter. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, speaking of, of Anchor, we're going to get into some of the history of Anchor. First, I want to get into some of your history as a, as a brewer, but also as a drinker. So let's talk about your background a little bit. When did this all begin? Did you start homebrewing in college or how'd you, how'd you get cracking into beer? Yeah, I'd say college is a good place to start. Um, I went to school in Berkeley across the bay and I toured this brewery as a senior at Cal back in the 80s. It was the first brewery I had ever toured. It was really like a magic moment. Uh, like it is for anybody walking into this brewery when you come in and you walk up those stairs and you first see those kettles and you smell the mash and the boiling wort and you see just like it's, it's walking into a church of beer. Um, <laughs> and I, as an impressionable young man, uh, walked in here with some of my buddies and I was, you know, I already loved Anchor. It was a beer that I grew up in the Bay Area. So I knew of Anchor. Uh, my dad bought Anchor Steam and Liberty Ale and Christmas Ale every year when I was a kid. I collected those bottles. I was totally into it. Um, you know, in college, we drank Anchor on like special occasions. We drank cheap, crappy beer uh, most of the time, like most college students do. But when you know it was something big, we'd we'd get a keg of Anchor and or a six pack or what have you, and and really uh, 
you know, live the dream. But for me, coming here that first time, that's like what opened my eyes to what a brewery was, where mm-hmm. beer came from. And then uh, within a couple of weeks, you know, we, I know we learned about the concept of homebrewing when we were here because we talked to the tour guide who, who you know, told us he started as a homebrewer. And we're like, what do you mean homebrewer? <laughs> <laughs> the mid-80s. So it wasn't a, a widely uh, held belief that you could brew your own beer. And once we found out, we were like, hell yeah. And we learned from him that there's a homebrew shop in, in Berkeley called the Oak Barrel uh, that I still give credit to this day. It's still open uh, on San Pablo. Wow. Those are area listeners. Uh, very soon thereafter, we were making our own beer. So it was a hobby. And it was something that I thought I was just going to do as a hobby until, uh, you know, I had to graduate from college and get a job like most people do who go to college. And uh, I was an English major. So I went and taught high school. Actually, down in your neck of the woods, um, I moved down to Ventura and uh, to high school up above uh, Ojai. Okay, yeah. Upper Ojai Valley um, in the shadow of Topa Topa. Yes. <laughs> you guys have a brewery down there now called Topa Topa, which, by the way, this is a big aside. We're way off track. But um, our pilot brewer is there today brewing a collaboration with Topa Topa. Oh, that's nice. amazing. We love Topa Topa. They're so good. Yeah, they contacted us out of the blue. They're one of our brewers that visited here, and he just was really enamored with it. And, and I'm like, Topa Topa, that's a special, like, sacred place for me. I'm like, we got to do this. So we sent our pilot brewery down there. So Dane's down there today making something. I'll get a report back from him uh, on what that is. But look for that. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, thanks for the exclusive on that one. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, breaking news. <laughs> so anyway, when I was down there teaching high school in Ojai, uh, I heard about the brewing program at UC Davis. And actually, I heard from my mom, sent me a note and told me about it. and. I was, that was the light bulb moment of, holy crap, I could, I could go make beer for a living. Yeah. You know, of course I had to, you know, figure out how to get back into school and get a master's. In. But from there, you know, the path was back nor- up north to UC Davis, uh, studied brewing, thought at the time that I was going to go work for a craft brewery or, or eventually really had the dream of, of opening my own brewery with my dad. Other things happened. Uh, my wife was working for AT&T. She got a promotion to New Jersey. And so we moved to New Jersey right when I graduated. And in New Jersey in the mid-90s, there wasn't much of a uh, small brewery scene. Um, I had a couple interviews out there with big breweries and decided that I was going to go uh, work for the man for a while and <laughs> figure out how to make beer and then go live my dream. And so I started working for Anheuser-Busch in 1995 in Newark, New Jersey. Um, as a brewing supervisor, and then uh, managed to weave my way through a career of 18 years, making Budweiser in Newark, New Jersey, Columbus, Ohio, St. Louis, Missouri, and then eventually they moved me back to the West Coast, uh, where I was eventually brewmaster of the brewery in Fairfield. Wow. Moved back to Davis, back to Northern California. And in the meantime, lots of things changed at that company. They eventually got bought um, by InBev. You may have heard of that. Uh, yeah. And you know, after a time there, which was, like I said, 18 years with AB, and I'd been a brewmaster for five years, and I started to think about looking for another job somewhere and didn't quite have uh, all the things lined up yet. I was thinking about thinking about getting my resume together, and I heard about the job here at Anchor, and I very quickly pulled my resume together, made some phone calls, and got an interview and 
got a job and quit my job all within like a three week period, just bang, 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 bang. Wow. And coming full circle, you know, when I came back here and interviewed, you know, it was that same feeling of walking up those steps and seeing that church of beer and realizing that I could come back here where it all started and, and make beer. That's amazing how it went full circle like that. I'm sure lots of people probably give you a little bit of a crap for working for Anheuser-Busch, but I imagine that taught you a lot about consistency and quality and being able to reproduce over and over again. Yeah, I learned a ton. I studied brewing at UC Davis for a couple of years and came out of there with a master's degree thinking I knew a whole lot about making beer. And I kind of did, but I, I didn't really like from a production aspect or, I mean, managing in a brewery and trying to put it all together and figuring all that out and, and moving from brewery to brewery and working in the corporate area. I, I learned a ton. I got to travel a bunch. I went to all 12 AB domestic breweries. I got to work in raw materials for a while when I was in corporate and I got to go to all of the major malt suppliers in North America. I went on hop trips to Yakima, Washington and New Zealand and Germany and also got to see, you know, the deeper bowels of the Midwest with corn grits and rice mills and all the other places, all the various suppliers. But I, I just, I learned every day about how to put it all together. And I learned, you know, how to work in a corporate environment, which even though it's, you know, not, not all fun and games, but at the end of the day, you're making beer. So it's the same process, whether you're making huge batches or small batches. It's just kind of the processing equipment and the, and the ways you do things that cause the, the variations. What was it like leaving a big corporate job for Anchor? Was it a little nerve-wracking, a little scary? Yeah, it was scary. I mean, it was great. Here, the, the one thing that I, I didn't really fully anticipate, um, but, uh, you know, grew into it, you know, with open arms, you know, it was exciting for me, was that... In, in a big company like AB, I was in brewing my whole career. So it all was from raw materials to putting a package and uh, putting beer in a, in a bottle can or keg, you know, and, and everything that, that that's a lot, right? But it yeah. didn't, I didn't interface with sales or market. I did a little bit with sales as a brewmaster. Like I'd go out on and do some beer dinners, and do some sales convention stuff, but it wasn't like a, a daily interface with sales. I, I had no interaction, no interaction with marketing, no, very, very little interaction with the overall corporate structure, all the other things that went on. And when you come into a small brewery like this, you touch them all, you see those people every day, you're in meetings with them, involved in product development from the very start. Whereas at AB, I, I really didn't ever touch that. And at AB, uh, did you have any sort of like hand in fun projects or one-offs or anything like that? Yeah, I actually did get to um, just a, the UC Davis connection was uh, a pretty deep connection with AB um, and still is like the, the professor at UC Davis is the Anheuser-Busch endowed professor of brewing science. So, so there's this involvement with the university and they've hired a lot of people historically especially out of our program, the, the food science program, um, and the VP of everything at AB back in the day, back in 2008, when I was brewmaster at Fairfield, it was the 100-year anniversary, the centennial of UC Davis. And since our vice president was heavily involved with the university and a graduate of there, uh, Doug Mulman is his name, he orchestrated 
us making a special uh, commemorative centennial beer in October of 2008 for the university. It was just for them. And and we did like a thousand cases. So to do a one-off like that and to create a beer at a big company like that and just have it be local and from my alma mater. And, you know, I had a few Davis people on the staff, including Davis interns at the time. And so there were all these people involved in, in making a beer directly for our university to celebrate their centennial. Uh, we made an Oktoberfest and it, it was it was delicious because it was in October when it was. So That's awesome. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I still have a couple of bottles. Oh, <laughs> I wonder how it's aged. I wouldn't. Uh, no. <laughs> you know, we, we, we did it like a year later and it was still holding up pretty nicely. But then after that, you just got to let it go. <laughs> let's uh let's talk a little bit about uh anchors history i mean anchor's been around uh, since the 1800s give us a little bit of the early beginnings of anchor if you can sure we've been anchor brewery in san francisco since 1896 i'm actually looking at uh, a big picture on the wall of the original brewery uh, oh nice in my office uh, we have a few of them around here it was it actually has roots that go further back than that to the 1870s with the, the Golden Pacific Brewery, um, which was founded by a man named Gottlieb Breckels. Uh, <laughs> he, yeah, mostly, you know, when you go into San Francisco brewing history and you have to talk about steam beer because steam beer is really a style that was, that was invented here and invented out of necessity uh, with people who came out here during the gold rush uh, and built the first breweries on the West coast. They didn't have ice. They didn't have refrigeration. They, made warm temperature lagers um, because they brought their lager yeast from Germany and they were going to make lagers, goddammit. They didn't uh, have the same conditions that they had at home. So fermented warm, fermented in open fermentations, and it got the nickname Steam Beer, mainly for that reason, we believe, although it's not clearly documented. So anyway, Breckels uh, was making uh, Steam Beer, and then he sold the brewery in 1896 to a couple of other German immigrants. Um, uh, Ernst Beruth and uh, Otto Schinkel, in case you want their names. Very, very German uh, sounding. Yeah, yeah, seriously, German heritage. Uh, and uh, they changed the name to the Anchor Brewery in 1896. So we trace our roots all the way back to then. Of course, in 1906, uh, that original brewery uh, burned down in the fire right after the big earthquake. They rebuilt, and that one burned down, and they rebuilt again, and then Prohibition shut them down. Uh, and then in 33, uh, the Anchor Brewery opened again. Anchor steam beer. And, you know, as it limped along through the 30s, 40s, and 50s, uh, that was a tough period in American beer. As you guys, I'm sure, are well aware, it was the exact opposite scenario, especially through the 50s, 60s, 70s that we have today, in that all the small breweries were closing and the big breweries were getting bigger. Anchor actually closed their doors briefly in 1959. Um, and reopened in the 60s. Um, and they were about to close their doors again in 1965 when uh, Fritz Maytag happened upon the scene. At that time, they were the last brewery on the West Coast and had been for quite some time, the last brewery making a style of beer called steam beer. And so Fritz loved the beer, but he knew it was not always spot on. And when he learned <laughs> the brewery was in financial trouble, uh, he had a meeting with them. He ended up uh, buying half of the brewery that very same day, you know, less than it would cost to buy a, uh, a mid-sized automobile in the 1965. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, they were down to triple digits in their bank account and only two uh, accounts they were still selling to in the city. So, I mean, it was tough times. The brewery was about to close. And if it closed, 
there would be no more steam beer. And it would have been a style, not just a brewery closing, but a style of beer being wiped off the face of the earth. And who knows if those ever come back. There are many, many that have gone away. And now, of course, they've been brought back because everything's been brought back. Right. But, you know, the the story of Fritz coming and, and saving this brewery, I think, is a fascinating. You know, another guy who didn't know he was going to make beer when he was going to college, even though he went to that other college across the bay. <laughs> he was actually he was a history major right so he was not he had to study up on beer uh once he bought the brewery and he really did and he focused on quality focused on on making steam beer an excellent drinkable beer and consistent beer and did a, a remarkable job and at a time when you think about it in the late 60s early 70s when he was doing this Everybody in America was drinking basically the same style of beer, light, crushable lagers, you right. know. Maybe there's some pilsners and some cream ales, but basically light, crushable golden beers. And Fritz was making a copper-colored, complex, beautiful beer called Anchor Steam. And, and then when he went to innovate, uh, you know, the rest of the world was zigging and Fritz was zagging. His second style of beer, his first innovation, which took him seven years to get to, mind you. That's something to put that in historical perspective. Every brewer worth his salt is putting out a new brewer every every week these days. Right. Uh, you know, every seven days. Fritz waited seven years for coming up with Anchor Porter. And when he came up with Anchor Porter, it was this dark, beautiful, robust porter, something completely different than what everybody was making, even further afield from where he started. And then his next innovation after that being Liberty Ale, another odd duck of a beer for 1975. Let's make the hoppiest beer on the planet. <laughs> and a variety that called Cascade that nobody's heard of before and, and hop the hell out of it. And that's what it was at the time. It was revolutionary. Yeah. And nobody was, was looking for hoppy beers at that point. No, but once they had them, really, that's the beer that, that started the revolution. Porter is beautiful for all these reasons. Liberty Ale is really the beer that historically is arguably the the most important beer ever made in America. And did that kind of lead towards the West Coast IPA? Yeah, yeah, it all it all starts from there. Fritz dry hopped Liberty Ale. Nobody was dry hopping in 1975. He went to England to research beer styles. He learned about cask conditioning. He learned about some beers that were hopped in the cask, but nobody was making commercially available dry hopped beers. Fritz had to reinvent the method of dry hopping and what he did with, with that to make Liberty Ale here in San Francisco in 1975, right around the time home brewing became decriminalized right? and brew pubs, the allowance of brew pubs and really Northern California is, is where all of that happened and it all branches back to Liberty Ale. Wow, that's insane. Speaking of his beer, talk a little bit about steam beer and what that is besides just a warmer fermented beer. Is that? Uh, yeah, so the style steam beer, the, the strict definition um, that we use, it's a lager that's fermented in an open fermenter at a relatively warm temperature. And the way we do it, we cool in at 60 degrees, which isn't all that warm, but then we allow it to free rise. Basically, there's no cooling jacket on the open fermenter. Mm. There's cool air that comes, cool filtered air comes into the room to cool the room, but the the, the beer itself, while it's fermenting, is allowed to warm up considerably in that open fermenter. So, and, and by open fermenter, I mean, you literally mean like there's no lid on the fermenting vessel, right? People 
refer to them uh, as looking like a swimming pool, although we'd never want anyone to swim it. <laughs> oh, darn. They're yeah. shallow. It's, uh, the, the ones that we use for steam beer are only about three feet deep. You really have to come here to the brewery to see it, right? and I recommend that. To all your listeners out there, come on a tour. We have tours every day. <laughs> I'm picturing a real Willy Wonka situation here. Uh, very Willy Wonka-esque. Yeah, the whole you know, we don't sing the Oompa Loompa song, but... <laughs> We've got the rest on. Our guys are wearing like the white suits, and uh, it's you know there's some incredibly interesting things here to see, especially uh, right now while we are uh, making Christmas ale, fermenting Christmas ale. That's that's a sight to behold. That's also in an open fermenter. Um, but yeah, to go back to steam beer, the strict definition is a beer, and it should be really a copper to amber colored beer from the malt bill, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the the definition is more around the fermentation that it's a lager yeast fermented at a warm temperature in an open fermenter okay and it's a really quick fermentation and then we drop it down to a secondary fermentation where we croisen it um, to naturally carbonate it those are all peculiarities to our our particular process but really it comes down to fermentation being the defining factor and how do you keep the bugs out with an open fermentation Oh, we have a clean room, um, you know, and the and we require everybody to be very careful in cleaning. You know, the, those rooms are not open to the public. They're only open to our fermentation people and our brewers. Occasionally, we'll take a, a behind-the-scenes tour in there, uh, private tour kind of thing, but we always make sure people don't touch anything. So are you all, like, hazmat suited up when you go in there? No, you don't have to be hazmat suited up. It's not that, you know, the brewing is a very robust process that's been done by humans for thousands of years. And it's interesting. You go some places and they will make you hazmat suit up, but you know it's not really necessary. We've done our research, and uh, LinkedIn has you at Anchor Brewers and and Distillers. Are you distilling anything? That's got to be updated. No, sorry, I, I should have updated that a couple of years ago. Um, because uh, we are no longer Anchor Brewers and Distillers. Anchor Brewery did have a distillery, and there is still a distillery on site. But they're now owned by a separate company, and they're called Hodelinks. Okay. But yes, and they make uh, whiskey and gin, and they make some fabulous stuff. And they do it right here in this building for now, but they're not owned by the same people anymore. Okay. And you're not, you don't have any involvement in that? Not currently, other than uh, they give us their barrels when they're done with them, and we age some beer in them. Ooh, that's nice. Oh. With smaller brewers, you know, we get a lot of smaller brewers on the show. One of their advantages is they get an idea, they make it, they put it on tap and see what the public thinks because they have smaller systems. Working for a larger company like Anchor, what's the process of coming up with a new idea and trying it and getting it approved and all that stuff? Fortunately, um, we were able to install a pilot brewery and tap room here a couple of years ago. Um, Before that, it it was quite difficult to pilot things. We had a little, like what's called a Sabco, a little... 10-gallon, basically a glorified homebrew set that was our pilot brewery before. But we bought a seven-barrel system and cleared out half of a warehouse across the street and put a big tap room in there, where, which is called Anchor Public Taps and is also open every day. We, uh, we brew something new every week. So it's, still, it's very much that small tap room experience in that you know, half the menu is our standard anchor brands that you can hopefully get most places um and then we have experimental brews that we're literally making every week something new and working on 
what is the next big thing? Some of it is, some of it's just for fun, but then, you know, we're working on our next IPA. We're working on some other interesting things. We formulate Christmas ale there and have Christmas in July um, when we've got <laughs> our, our formulation ready and make sure that it tastes good and that everybody likes it. And, and then we, we move on from, from there. But, but yes, we are able to do that. And it's very nice. It's very nice to have. Yeah, has there been a beer that went over really well at the uh, at the public taps, but maybe didn't make production? Oh yeah, certainly. And it's it's interesting because everybody kind of gets a favorite, and especially the bartenders over there, they'll see what's moving, and then they have their favorites. And we got to make this big. We got to do you know, and, and you, you can't do that with everything. You can only select so many that are going to be you know the next San Francisco or Baykeeper or whatever it is. It has to grow from there, but it can't be everything that we make. And, you know, the, the double IPA that we have on right now, delicious, but it's not going to make it past the taproom. <laughs> what was one that you specifically really dug? Like, you know, we kind of need some details here. Oh, man, we did, a, we did a whole steam variation thing this summer. We made like black steam, Vienna steam, smoked steam, wow. a hoppy steam, a whole bunch of different Steam beers and the Vienna steam for me is just like right in my wheelhouse. I love a Vienna lager and a Vienna steam beer was was just it was delicious uh, and malty and flavorful and my style of beer. That's not everybody's style of beer. Mm. And I enjoyed it. It's all gone now. Though. <laughs> oh. I find that to be the case with a lot of brewers. What they really want to drink and what the public wants to drink is usually not lining up. Yeah, and and you've got to have a mix, you know. And that's why, like I said, some of them are just for fun. You, you know, when you're serving beer in a public place like that, you have to have certainly at least three different IPAs, and then you need some light and drinkable things. You need something that's sour, tart with fruit. You need some dark beers. Um, and you need that balanced menu. And so picking and choosing, well, what are we going to do next? Well, we got to look, are, the, are we about to run out of these dark beers? And, and we're always going to have some of those on our, you know, our standard anchor, but people want to try those experimental things. So we just keep them coming. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of experimental, and, and we're talking about anchor being uh, kind of, you know, much smaller than, than AB, ever since Sapporo took over Anchor, it seems like there's been a bigger focus on being smaller and more local and kind of connecting back to the roots. Is that true? I think that's a good question. That's interesting. We, we have, I think that's an accurate statement that it's very important for us to preserve our San Francisco roots and to, for people to understand that, hey, no matter who the owner is, and, and believe me, Anchor has had several owners. You heard me told the, tell the history. Yeah several owners over the 120 something years we've been around for owners um, who are, you know, much larger than us and, and from another country. Um, and at the same time though, they are, if you remember, Sapporo is a city in Japan and they are named after their city where they, where they started and they're the oldest brewery in Japan and huh. history and legacy is very important to them. And even though they sell Sapporo beer here in the U.S., it's still that historically the idea of Sapporo beer comes from the city of Sapporo, where beer started in, in Japan. The first brewery ever in Japan, once Japan became an open society, was Sapporo Breweries. So wow. that origin story is super important for them. 
And our origin story is super important to us. The people who started these breweries in San Francisco and, and started the brewing traditions in San, San Francisco came from other places. They were, they were not native to here, as we all know, you know, but they brought their own traditions and they brought their own yeast. And actually the brewing tradition that came to Japan came uh, from Germany as well, you know, and as it does much of the world over, the German uh, heritage of, uh, it's why lager beers all, you know, you go wherever you go, you can find a lager beer because right. those German brewers traveled with their yeast and with their technology. And it seems like uh, Sapporo, you know, the, they connect to the roots. It also seems like they don't try to be anything. They're not a lot of big beer these days. They're trying to jump on the latest hipster trends or, or make a new seltzer or whatever. Sapporo's like, look, we make good beer. It goes well with sushi and we connect to our roots. And it seems like Anchor's sort of doing the same thing. Like, look, we make good beer. We're from San Francisco and uh, we, you know, we make something special that not everybody else makes. And it also goes great with sushi. <laughs> Although the, the anchor steam typical food pairing is gonna, I'm gonna tell you, is steamed mussels. Okay. That are steamed in steam beer. Interesting. Oh wow. Three layers of steam right there. Delicious with with many things. It's and yeah, you, I, I'm gonna agree with everything you said there. That yes, that is important. That as as a brewing company, we are not out there chasing trends. You're not gonna see. Anchor bubbly water coming anytime soon. <laughs> Although we've tried to we've been around a little bit with it, and you know it's it's fun, um, but it's like we're making beer out of uh, malt and hops. Okay, so, so having said all of that, uh, what role has San Francisco played in the identity of Anchor? Um, I think it's a really important role. You know, and, and you may have seen this summer we rolled out a uh, steam bottle with the Golden Gate Bridge on the on the label. Yeah just to kind of cement that relationship, remind people that's where we're from. Um, it is kind of synonymous with the city. We get stories, you know, I, I get the kind of fan mail here as well as the complaints, but, uh, <laughs> but the fan mail, you know, many people, it's, they will say anchor steam reminds me of San Francisco. It reminds me of the first time I was there. There's something about the chill foggy air here and the, the way the beer drinks and tastes that does really, you know, sensory memories are very important. They're very important with our emotional connections with things. And a lot of people have an emotional connection because of that sensory memory of that first steam beer. It really, it really does connect and it connects to that time they were in San Francisco and they were at this bar and they were watching the sun go down over the Bay or whatever it is. And it's, and you can't really watch the sun go down over the bay from San Francisco. You really have to go to Berkeley to do that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, not everybody knows that. It's too much fog anyways. Yeah, yeah. Sunsets, sunsets out in the Sunset District can often be very, very disappointing. <laughs> Gray and murky, and then it's dark. And and speaking of getting the, uh, the fan mail and the complaints, what kind of complaints do you get? Right. Who's complaining about beer? People complain about beer if... You know, the, the odd things that happen, like my 12-pack is missing a bottle, which is very, very rare, but it happens. <laughs> or, you know, some of them, uh, we had this one poor unfortunate soul who the bottom fell out of his six-pack and they all broke. Oh, uh, you know, oh I had that happen. Uh, you've had that happen too, yeah. It was the and worst. It ended up being a gluing problem from our supplier, but still, we got to answer that. And then, you know, my beer didn't taste quite right type of thing. Sometimes people find old beer out there, um, which is unfortunate. But, 
you know, I, I'm the one who gets to smooth all that over. They get a letter from the brewmaster, you know, possibly a refund or a shirt or a tour. <laughs> I try to be nice. I try to make it up to them. Yeah, that's phenomenal. I'm not encouraging complaints, by the way. No, no, of course not. If you really want a t-shirt, just come to the beer. Yeah, it almost <laughs> sounded like you were for a second there. I was like, <laughs> is it like strange brew? There's a rat in my beer. <laughs> we had we had one guy. It's a mouse, by the way. There's mouse, sorry. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting. We have uh, Canadians uh, that we collaborate with because Sapporo also owns uh, Slingman Brewery up in Canada. And I always ask those guys, I'll, I'll quote strange brew to them and they'll look at me funny. Um <laughs> There, that there's a mouse in my beer, eh? That um, is Bob and Doug, uh, right? Um, from Strange Brew and yep. um, Bob and Doug McKenzie, right? There it is. Um, and uh, we had a guy leave a voicemail on our line here one night, and you could tell he was obviously housed, but he <laughs> he did the whole thing, like from start to finish of that whole monologue of "There's a mouse in my beer." Eh? That's amazing. Um, and left his phone number. We called him up. <laughs> that's so good one last question before we move on to christmas ale what innovations in craft beer excite you um ones that involve making beer i'll start with that not seltzer <laughs> that's seltzer really isn't beer um but and i realize that people want to drink it and i get it i understand why um i think that the things that always for me it comes back to if you're going to make a beer you should hope that people are going to want to drink it. Um, so drinkability matters. Yeah. I say that without trying to be offensive in any way, but you know, there, there had been a trend in beer for a while and there still is. And some people will still do it of making these undrinkable concoctions um, that are super high in alcohol or super bitter, or super over the top on pounds per barrel of hops and all that, that kind of extreme. I know there's a festival dedicated to extreme beers, but yep. those things have never really interested me all that much. Anything that I can only drink a thimbleful of and they only sell in big bottles and I have to have at least 10 people to share it with. Those are fun, and they're fun for us to taste here at the brewery where it's easy to gather around 10 people and, and pour a little sip of it and see what kind of silly faces people make when they drink it. <laughs> but for me, the, the, the trend of drinkability, the trend of making well-crafted, drinkable lagers and golden ales and cream ales, and, and not that they all have to be light, uh, you know, a, a Vienna lager is delightful too or something, but drinkability balance, finding things that people are going to want to have more than one of and, and sit down. And I, I don't like to use the word session too heavily, but because it, that connotes different things. I, but I'm talking about mainly just drinkability and, and making sure that we as brewers make things that our customers want to drink, not just one of I got to say, that's a fantastic answer to that question. I mean, that's innovation in and of itself, you know, not giving into trends, you know, quality over trendy. Like, that, that's a great answer, I got to say. Speaking of I want to hit the pause button for a moment. Yeah. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk down the hall and grab a, a fresh Christmas ale that was just packaged moments ago. I'm back. I brought in Tommy, too, because uh, I don't want to drink alone. So. That's right. All right. So I'm pouring a glass. Always. Don't drink your Christmas ale out of the bottle. 
Thank you. This is a, a goblet or snifter type of beer for me. I like the goblets. They're fun to hold. I like the big bottles of this too. I'm looking at them right now. We put, we package this in 12 ounce and also in magnums. And the magnums are perfect for uh, Thanksgiving table or any other feast. Yeah, we've, we've had a few of those magnums around here. Yeah, and so we just opened a 12-ounce bottle right now. You know, pours in the glass this year is, is a beautiful brown with just a hint of redness. Like, I've got some sun streaming in through the window yes. here. And just in the bottom, you see that little red hue on the bottom, and, and you got a nice tannish head. I mean, if you poured it with a big, big head, uh, yep. it's filtered. So, you know, it's, it's, it's got a nice clarity to it, but it's just dark enough that you can almost not tell. The aroma should be coming out at you. Um, as you, I'm sure, are aware, we change up the recipe every year. Right. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um, people always ask, where does it start? Like, how do you come up with this? We generally always start from the previous year and just say, okay, well, what do we want to take out? What do we want to add in? And where do we want it to arrive at? And it's all of those things get discussed um, amongst four or five of us around the table. We'll taste last year's batch sometime in March and then, you know, formulate some ideas, uh, begin the, the tiny pilot test brews on the, on the little homebrew system downstairs to evaluate you know, what new malts and what new spices we might want to use. And then we take it from there. It's an iterative process. The concept we came up with was coastal spices. Um, and so I've been asked, what does that mean? And, and what that means, I mean, first of all, you have to, you have, to have some idea of, of the Northern California coast and, and what kind of trees and plants are growing there. And what do you smell? What do you go, if you go to Land's End, and stand there as the fog is rolling in and breathe in deeply. What does it smell like? And then what spices are we going to use to, to try to arrive at that? You know, and that's, that's where we started with this. So, so you get that kind of hint of an evergreen and, and herbaceous uh, floral type aromas. Mm -hmm. And it's not, a, it's not a cinnamon and spice type of spiced ale. It's very much of a herbaceous and various other spices that are in there. And then you get that, that roasted malt um, that's bringing a little aromatics of kind of a Mexican chocolate and, and toasted roasted malts. And you combine all that together and you Christmas out. Yeah. And when you say spices, just everybody, you should know, he's not referring to pumpkin spice in any way, shape <laughs> or form. No, this is not a pumpkin spice. It's not a, <laughs> and technically the style, what we call it is a spiced winter warmer. It's a dark brown ale also. Spiced winter warmer is more what we would refer to it as. Yeah, that makes sense. It sounds like a very intimate process when you guys are coming up with each year's recipe. Yeah, yeah. You know, really, there are four of us that are that are driving this process at this point on the on the brewing team. There was one year that, that we allowed uh, our former head brewer to really come up with his own recipe and we we still even though he started all on his own we all chimed in you know and and we talked about mark carpenter a little bit mark was certainly the driving force behind this beer for years as well and he led that charge but he also got lots of input from other people so it's you know back to i am sure that early on fritz owned it solo um but he you know brought in others and 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 then Mark brought in others. And then it's it's just, 
it's this thing that's been passed on from from brewer to brewer and it's an important legacy it sounds like what the holidays are all about right there yeah and actually i'm looking out over the brew kettle floor right now and i can see like there's a little bit of steam rising out we're making christmas out today and uh, nice. there's a little steam rising out of the ladder tub and uh, we have on the wall back there in the brew house this cool old painting of uh, St. Nicholas, who is, of course, the patron saint of Broome. So oh. to look at old St. Nick on the wall back there. Oh, how perfect. Definitely a nod to Christmas. Yeah. That's perfect. Is there a lot of, uh, I don't know, pressure to come up with a good one every year? Oh, certainly. Yeah, we don't want to screw it up. <laughs> right. <laughs> Do this for 45 years. I want to make one that nobody likes. And last year, last year we took a big risk. We took a lot of dark malts out and we made it much lighter brown ale than it had been for the previous years. And it was was a pretty big departure. 2016 was pretty dark. 2017 was even darker. It was like almost black. And then 2018, we went way back the other way. And now we're right in the middle of those two. I'm really happy with it at this, this color and this intensity. Yeah, I'm really. We're just drinking it now for the first time. It's really good. What's what was the feedback last year when you went really light with it? At first, I got like three angry letters in the first couple of weeks, and I was <laughs> freaking out. Uh, oh shit, we're gonna have just this onslaught of landslide of, of hate mail, and that was it. Never got another complaint, and then just started getting compliments, and people were so happy with the drinkability, and sit down and drink a six pack of this, and and so it got really good reviews. Oh, good. The you know, I, I don't know if that's it's like the people with the mail-in ballots are always tend to vote one way, and then the, the election can slide. That's kind of how it is. <laughs> Do you have a favorite year, whether you've been a part of it or not? I don't even know if it's possible to remember all that. Right. I remember remembering that certain years were super good. I remember '86. I think it's it's just stuck in my sensory memory that I first toured this brewery in '87. And they still had some 86 here and we were able to buy both. And we, we all liked the previous years better, 86. And I hung on to those for a while. Um, but the funny thing is in, in 2016, uh, a, a guy uh, contacted us and we get these a lot, but this guy was right in San Francisco and he's like, I have some 86 Christmas sale. And I found in my basement when I was clearing it out. Do you want to taste some 30 year old Christmas sale? And <laughs> my reaction is usually no. Um, right. <laughs> but for some reason, this guy, we told him, yeah, bring him by. And because we were just bringing out that year's and we'll taste alongside. You can taste this year's. And it, you know, 30 years old, 30 year old Christmas ale does not taste good. I would imagine, especially, I think back then it was much lower ABV, right? Yeah, they, they, it was 5.5 for years. Um, but yeah, anything, you know, just, I, I can tell you that the, the tasting notes on 30 year old beer is kind of, uh, Shoe polish, burnt ashtray, and, and <laughs> licking uh, charcoal. All the things I'm not gonna say. Um, yeah, but uh, it, it wasn't. Would you guys ever consider like bringing back a particular year, or have you ever done it and not told anybody, or is it new year, new beer? Never happened, but um, it's an interesting thought. The older years to to even find the recipes, they're in these. They're all on paper and they're in these boxes. There were no computers in this building until 2010. Oh, wow. You know, we've got, we've got all the, the paper handwritten recipes that go all the way back, but they're, 
they're literally on paper inboxes. Wow, that's uh, that's, that's quite the file keeping system then. Right. All right, we like to finish off all the interviews with a set of rapid fire questions. Awesome. So I'm going to throw these at you. Don't think about them too hard. All right. I'm ready. All right, here we go. What was the first beer you drank? Uh, Hams. What was the first beer you brewed? Um, It was a nut brown ale. Nice. What's the first beer that you brewed and sold? Ooh, have to be Budweiser. What's your favorite style to brew? Um, Steam beer. Cans or bottles? Depends on where I am and where I'm going, but I'm going to... I'm going to go with bottles. What's your favorite beer food pairing? I already gave you steam beers and steam mussels, but um, I'll give you also Liberty Ale and raw oysters. Okay. It's Tuesday night. What are you drinking? Um, Steam beer. What's your beercation destination? I've never been to Belgium and I really want to go. What is your favorite outside, so non-anchor beer? I'm going to go with Augustiner Edelstoff. Nice. What's your favorite non-beer hobby? I, I wish it was more of like a an often hobby, but it isn't. But I, I'm going to have to say that my perfect day has to involve snowboarding. Nice. Oh, wow. What is your favorite guilty pleasure beer? The PBR is the standard answer, or Budweiser. In yeah. my case. I still will, if if I go to... Um, a bar that doesn't have my beer and I look around and I see it. I'm just bud bottle. And what's your favorite word or slang for being drunk? Hammered. Mm-hmm. Nice and simple. Everybody, if you're in San Francisco, please go take a tour or go check out the public taps, which is their pilot brewery, 495 DeHaro street in San Francisco, anchorbrewing.com and at anchor brewing across the board on social media. Scott, have we forgotten anything? I, I need to dispel a myth, please. Because the myth, it used to be true. It was super hard to get in here for a tour. You had to book months in advance. Um, You had to book only on the phone. And that's not the case anymore. We opened up weekend tours a couple years back. And we have tours every day. And it's easy to book online. And you can get in, like, especially midweek, like a moment's notice. Easy. That day. And it is literally, I've been in um, hundreds of breweries all over the planet. And... This is the best brewery tour. And I read somewhere that you get 12 samples on the tour. That's not true. Not true. Oh, too bad. <laughs> Generally six. But but they're, you know, they're, they're healthy little pours. And if you want another one, there's generally nobody who's going to say, hey, sir, you always have your tour. No, they're really cool about it. But then there's the public tap room across the way. And you get a discount there before and after. There's plenty of beer. And leave your trunks at home, right? They won't let you into the beer pool. Yeah, there's no swimming. <laughs> okay. The lifeguard on <laughs> That's perfect. All right, Scott, thank you so much for hanging out with us. You're welcome. Thanks for uh, allowing me to open a beer and uh, make it through the final uh, the final bonus round. Do I win anything? Uh, you win more beer. All right. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Scott. Thanks one last time to Scott for joining us today and talking all about Anchor. Let us know if you guys have your hands on some Christmas ale from Anchor Brewing yet. We want to know what you think of this year's edition. You can find us at theunfilteredgentleman.com, at theunfilteredgentleman on social medias, except for Twitter, at unfilteredgents. Drop us a line, theunfilteredgentleman at gmail.com. And most importantly, make sure that you guys are all staying extremely well hydrated. And on that note, good night, everybody. Good night, everybody.